0: In the introduction to the New Quarter on Romans, the first sentence of the first paragraph of the introduction says, 500 years ago this month, Martin Luther, a 33-year-old theology professor, posted his 95 Thesis. Yes, Martin Luther took a stand against distortion, against church abuses, against ideas that enslaved minds and hearts of people. Yes, Martin Luther was the man who was true to his conscience and wouldn't allow politics and church administration or church authority to intimidate intimidate him into compromising what he understood to be true. Yes, Martin Luther said no to ecclesiastical authority and yes to following the Bible. And Martin Luther put the Bible in the language of the people so they could read it. Now, with all that being said, did Martin Luther have all truth? No. No, absolutely not. He was a very strong anti-Semite, wrote very offensive things about the Jews. Uh, I've never read anything that he wrote or attributed to him that, in my view, uh, indicated that he actually understood God's law correctly. He did not accept the books of James, Revelation, Jude, or Hebrews as being inspired, and thus they went to the back. Of the, If you have a a Lutheran Bible that was was organized as Martin Luther organized it, those four books are shoved to the back because he said he could not find Christ in those books of the Bible. So given these issues, just to name a few, should we today hold to the understandings and theological positions of Martin Luther? If you're not sure, how many would like to go to a doctor who practiced medicine like they did 500 years ago? How many would like to have your food prepared like cooks who stored and prepare food like they did 500 years ago? How many would like to drink water from sources they had 500 years ago? How many would like to travel in conveyances like they did 500 years ago? How many would like marriage to function like it did 500 years ago? How many women would like to give birth in the same setting as they did 500 years ago? You see, truth is unfolding. All truth is unfolding, including Bible truth. God is infinite; we're finite. Infinite, finite. How big's the gap? Infinite gap. We we are never to stop advancing, either on this planet or in the earth made new. We never stop advancing in our understanding, insight, knowledge of God. He's infinite. We never become infinite. We're always moving forward. Martin Luther was a man who moved forward in truth. He came from a very dark understanding of what was taught, and he moved forward. Yet we should not seek to promote the belief system of Martin Luther as if we're moving forward. Theologians today who promote Luther's views are not moving into the light, they're moving us into the darkness. Let me give you an example. If you were in a cave... And as you're leaving the cave, you're walking out into the light, you're moving from darkness into the light. But if you're in the full sunlight and you're walking into the cave, now, two people, one walking out of the cave, one walking into the cave, at some point they will pass. As they pass at that moment, they're both being illuminated by the same amount of light. One's moving into the light, one's moving into the darkness. If we teach Martin Luther's penal substitution theology views, we are moving from light into darkness. We're not moving from darkness into light. We must acknowledge that Martin Luther, we must acknowledge him and give thanks to him and what he did to move the ball forward, but never go back. Never go back. Never hold to his understandings. Now, if you understand where Martin Luther was coming from, this makes perfect sense. You'll make perfect sense as to why penal substitution theology 500 years ago was a positive move forward, but it's a definite move back today. Why? There were two grand lies, two very huge lies that underpin Martin Luther's development and creation. I'm saying that creation, he created this doctrine of penal substitution theology. And what are the two grand lies? One, God's law functions no different than human law system of imposed rules without inherent consequence which requires the divine magistrate to adjudicate breaches in the rule inflict proper punishments for it and those deeds must be accounted for in some way somebody has to pay the penalty you can accept Jesus' payment it's accounted to your record book and, and having your declared to be righteous even though you're not this was all constructed by Luther based on one lie the idea that God's law functions like human law but there was another lie that led to him and because he was wanting to get rid of the other lie he never saw the first lie he never understood that But there was a second lie that Martin Luther did understand. He recognized it to be false. And the penal substitution theology came along for the express purpose of ridding the church or ridding Christians from belief in that lie. And that lie? The teaching of purgatory. Now, what is the teaching of purgatory? The teaching of purgatory teaches that if sinners die before they are purified on this planet, they have sin still in their life, but they are not damned, eternally damned, beyond healing, uh, a mortal sin that they can't be forgiven from, then they go to a place called purgatory. And in purgatory, then the remaining sin that hadn't been removed from their life gets purged. That's what's purgatory, purging, purging away of the sin through suffering and pain and so forth. This particular doctrine caused terrible fear in people, caused them to see God in a horrible light, and the church abused this doctrine to coerce and manipulate people because they would tell people that their loved ones were in purgatory, but they could get their loved ones out of purgatory if they would pay the church some money. And so the great, the great offering calls of the day, they actually had a, a rhyme that went like this. Whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> Thus, penal substitution theology created by Martin Luther was designed to directly undercut the church's teaching on purgatory. So in penal substitution theology, it's taught that all sins from every person who's ever lived, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ at the cross, and 2,000 years ago, God punished all the sins in Jesus 2,000 years ago, and if you accept the legal payment that Jesus has made in your behalf then the punishment has already been carried out there is no place or need for purgatory because you will be declared to be righteous even though you're not and you get the legal accounting of purged to your record book in heaven the records have been purged of sin this was the reason for the penal substitutionary theology to come forward and it was a move forward It's like coming out of a cave, moving into the light. But if we, in the light, go into the cave or moving into darkness, to teach this idea today is is to put obstacles up. God actually prophesied in Scripture that the Reformation would be completed by a group of people who are referred to in the Bible as the remnant who come back to worship the designer, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, who reject the imperial human law constructs, worship designer-creator law constructs, and actually experience regeneration, transformation of the inner person so that it's no longer I that live but Christ lives in me, or actually Christ-like. Continuing on with this theme in the, in the fourth paragraph of the introduction, The fourth paragraph states, yes, it was in Romans that Luther found the great truth of justification by faith alone. So, class, what is justification by faith? Trust in God. He will heal. Okay, that's, uh, that's a nice way to say it. Is that how it's taught in the penal view? Justification by faith is also known as righteousness by faith. Why is it known as righteousness by faith? Because to do the just thing is to do the right thing. To be justified is to be rightified, or to be made right, or to be made righteous, or to be put right. That's what it means. And in the Greek, there's only one word for just justify and righteous. It's the same word, dikaiodikasune. It's the same word, and it's translated either righteous or justice, or justified, or righteousness. Same word. So, righteous by faith, justification by faith, same thing. But notice what Hebrews 5.13 says. Speaking about the spiritually mature... Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now we're talking about justification or righteousness by faith. If we're on milk, teaching the the, the childish ways of things, we're not acquainted with that doctrine. Well, well, does, does the Bible help us know what that milk looks like? Well, yes. Next verse. Here's the next verse. Or actually, two verses later, because the verse 14 says, the mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. So the, the mature the thinkers, reasoners, weigh out the evidences, understand how reality works. That's mature. What's the immature look like? Here's what it says in Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings. What's elementary? Mature stuff or the infant stuff? Okay, elementary teachings about Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of acts that lead to death. Not laying the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. What does that mean? Repentance from acts. What is that? The do's and the don'ts. The behavior. The penal idea. The penal legal theology. Focusing on law and deeds. Thus, according to Hebrews, those who hold to this penal substitutionary theology view... Which teaches that sin is behavioral, breaking God's imposed law, which requires imposed penalties, and that God sent Jesus to be our substitute and taking our punishment, are not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. They're not teaching righteousness by faith. They're not teaching justification by faith. And in their own position statements, if you listen, they tell you, because this is what they describe. Listen to their position statements. And you can talk to the theology professors up here, they will tell you this. What is justification? It's when you accept the legal payment of Jesus, God declares you to be righteous, Even though you're not in their own position, they're saying you're not righteous. They're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. It's no wonder Christ has not returned. Christ is waiting for people to throw off the lies about him, to experience genuine healing, genuine righteousness, genuine transformation. Now, lest anyone think, because I'm throwing off and rejecting penal substitutionary theology that I'm abandoning or rejecting the idea of Christ, our substitute for salvation, let me say it clearly, we could not be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was not possible. It was a requirement for our salvation. It just wasn't a legal requirement. Jesus is our substitute in that he took our terminal condition upon himself and cured it. Thus, he provides remedy for all who trust him. As the scripture says, Second Corinthians five twenty-one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be declared to be righteous even though we're not. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? So that we might become the righteousness of God. The purpose for his substitutionary death was not legal. It was restorative, recreative, healing, renewal, rebirth. Write the law on the heart and mind. There's a great difference between what the Bible teaches and what the penal view teaches. The Bible teaches that we become righteous. We become righteous. The penal view teaches we're declared righteous even though we're not. And there's this false view that's infected Christianity. It has a form of godliness, but no power to live a godly life. Now, if you'd prefer one of the founders of the SDA church to say basically all that I said in one paragraph, I love this one. You've heard me re- read it because I think this is kind of a, a core heart description of the issue. This is our age 762. The law requires righteousness. We're talking about righteousness by faith. Why does the law require righteousness? If you understand design law, for the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. The law of respiration requires, if you want to live, that you breathe. Why? What's so arbitrary? No, it's because that's how life is built. If you don't breathe, you're out of harmony with the way life is built. You'll die. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. He's the second Adam. He's the the new head of the human race. Thus, they have remission of sins that that are passed through, notice this language, The forbearance of God. Not through the proper penalties being paid, through the proper punishments being laid out. No, through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier, the rightifier, making righteous those who believe in Jesus. This is true righteousness by faith. This other thing, it's false. It cheats people. It tells them they'll never be righteous. They'll only be declared to be righteous. Seventh paragraph in the introduction says, Yet, over the long years, the Reformation has stalled. It's it's, it's a fact. The Reformation has stalled. Question to the class. Why? What is your understanding as to why the Reformation has stalled. What's, what stalled it? Why hasn't it com- been completed? Why has it stopped? Why has it gotten stuck? Yes? The same reason why it got stuck in the Jewish nation. You know, they, they were given a messi- message um, revealed to the people and there should have been a, a message to the people. Instead, they became proud of the fact that they had the message. And having that um, pride, they became isolated. You know, you know um, clean and unclean kind of thing. Other thoughts. What so so pride. Pride is in, in the church is, is obstructing the message. If we do go out with this proud, arrogant view, we've got the truth and and uh, you don't, then then we misrepresent Christ. He did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. He humbled himself into the form of a servant. This pride and arrogant presentation misrepresents God. O- other other reasons why the Reformation is stalled, yeah. Because we're misrepresenting the character of God. If you believe in the imposed law, then what you start to think about God is that he is, in fact, more of a tyrant. You're afraid of him. Love can't grow. And those who are actually thinking about it see that that's the case, see that there's actually no change, and they back off saying, why bother? You're, not, you're no different than I am. And, in fact, in, as I point out in the first chapter of the new book, Child abuse rates in Christian homes no different than non-Christian homes. P- spouse abuse rates no different. Pornography use no different. Addiction rates no different. I mean, these problems are no different in Christian homes and non-Christian homes because a form of godliness with no power to change. The change, when you change the heart, the behaviors change. But focusing on behavioral religion without a heart change, it doesn't result in behavioral change. Yes? If you think you already have the truth, you don't keep seeking it. So if you think we've come to a... The arrival at the truth. This is the fulfillment of the truth. There's no more to be learned. These are, these are the 28. We've set down our stakes and we need to defend them. Then we stop growing. Yes. Rather than what it says we are to be lovers of the truth, meaning having a heart that says, Lord, I'm a finite being. This is my current understanding, but it needs to grow. There, there's more I don't understand. I want to grow forward, move forward in the truth. So a hunger for advancement in the truth is is the healthy... Thessalonians, those that die in the end, they perish because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. They didn't have a heart that loved to advance in truth. So that's good. Here's a comment from one of the founders of the Adventist church in the book called Christ Object Lessons regarding the the message to go to the world to finish the Reformation. See if you agree with this. It is the darkness and misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. What would be illuminating and saving? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. This is design law stuff. When we go to the world with an arbitrary dictator God who set up a system of rules, and if you don't keep his rules, he's required by justice to torture you before he kills you. Unless you get the legal payment of a son who begs him off, we are not representing the character of God. We can't finish the work in that view. The Reformation will only be complete when all the lies and distortions about God's character are replaced with truth, which requires we come back to worship him who made the heavens the earth. As long as we present God as the source of inflicted pain and suffering, albeit legally applied in a just way, we fail to finish the Reformation. That's what Satan, I think, has done, is infected Christian thinking with this distorted legal judicial magistrate who's the source of punishment. The last paragraph states, we are Seventh-day Adventists, and we rest upon the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But if we allow the scripture, if we actually value the scripture, if we're going to apply the principles of the scripture, if we're going to let the scripture lead us into truth, then we come to the conclusion that the scripture doesn't say scripture alone. The scripture actually teaches there are three threads of evidence we are to use. And you guys know, we've, we've said this many times in here, that scripture isolated from the other two threads leads to confusion and distortion. Thty38, 40,000 different Christian groups in the world now are arguing which verse this means or that means. And so what does the scripture tell us? In addition to scripture, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. And how about not just that passage, how about all the passages that tell us to meditate on God's creation, his handiwork, his wonders, the heavens declare the glory of God, the trees and so forth, and the nature. I mean, the Bible's filled with this turning to nature to learn about God. So science and nature. And then how about taste and see that the Lord is good? Check me out. Experience me. Thomas, when he was doubting, he was doubting whether he should believe that Jesus is risen. Did Jesus give him a Bible quote? What did he do? Put your hand in my flesh. Touch me. See. From your experience. And he said, and he told him, from that, you should do something. Stop doubting and believe. Based on what? His experience. See, we have three threads. If we separate the threads, you know, science by itself frequently leads to godlessness. Experience by itself leads to mysticism. Scripture by itself leads to confusion. How about how Jesus taught with parables? His parables always pulled on two things. Nature and life experiences. He always used nature and life experiences to teach the reality of the Bible. And so one of the founders of the SDA church, I, I know I know you guys are confident because the evidence is so self-evident that that's true, but here's a couple quotes from Ellen White. Christophilus lessons 125, the great storehouse of, of truth is the word of God hyphen connected to, here's what the word of God is, the written word, the book of nature, and the book of experience in, in God's dealing with human life. Here are the treasures from which God's workers are to draw. What book? Scripture, nature, science, experience. She gives another one in Education, page 77. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. Would you like to follow the divine plan? Because I'm going to tell you, if you follow Sola Scriptura, you are not in the divine plan. You're in the plan of the author of Confusion. Here's the divine plan. The schools at the of his time with their magnifying of things small and belittling of things great did not, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heaven appointed sources, useful work, the study of scripture of nature and the experiences of life. God's lesson books. Mm -hmm. See those who teach the penal imposed law construct must hold to the sola scriptura and and I, when I've had conversations with the theologians up here I brought up the integrative view I brought these things and they rejected it no we must hold the sola scriptura do you know why how does nature work what kind of law does nature work on natural design law okay you cannot sustain and promote an arbitrary human law construct When you harmonize scripture with how reality works and real life experiences, those ideas of law will be rejected. The only way to hold a penal views are to reject reality. It's a fantasy. It's a distortion. Sabbath lesson, third paragraph states, and yet, however localized the immediate issue that Paul was addressing, the principles behind them, in this case, the question, how is a person saved is universal. Great question. As Tina pointed out before class, great lesson, right? Great question here. How is a person saved? So how do you answer the question? And this question, doesn't it actually require that that certain things be defined before you can answer it? For instance, what does it mean to actually be saved? Um, Before you answer it, don't you need to know from what a person is being saved? What what are we being saved from? From what are we being saved? Uh, before I can answer, uh, you know, how is a person saved? I got to know what it is we're being saved from. Sin. Well, that's a good one. I I, I would agree with that. And as you think about this this, and we're going to break it down here, as we think about this salvation being saved from sin, do you think okay? In order for that to happen, what must God achieve? What must humans do? Is there anything we have to do? Is there anything required of us? And as you answer the question, what law lens are you using? Are you using design law? Are you using imposed law. When people have the false imposed law lens, here's the classic description of what's necessary to reconcile us to God, i.e., save us, restore us to him. Here's here's that of a book called The Cross of Christ by George Knight, published by the Advent Review, the Adventist Review. Publishing. Paul always speaks of people being reconciled to God. He never refers to God being reconciled to us. I'm going to stop right there. Those are absolutely true statements, and he gives four Bible texts to prove that, in fact, the Bible always speaks of people being reconciled to God. Do you understand what reconciled means? People being reconciled to God means people are being changed to be put back in harmony with God. It never speaks of God being reconciled to us, God being changed to be put in harmony with us. It never speaks of that. Those are absolutely true statements. Now, in this, t- this quote, here's the very next words. In spite of that fact. <laughs> what does that tell you? Before I even read more, what does that tell you we're about to do?
1: Absolutely.
0: This is what the Bible teaches. We know it teaches this, but we know better. In spite of that fact. Now, this is what he goes on to say. In spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affects both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated from God while God was, God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death propitiation removed the barrier to reconciliation from God's side. According to this, what are you, what are you hearing here? Are you thinking? Are you reasoning? By the way, this is a lie. This is this is the wine of Babylon. This is the infection that prevents the, the Reformation. This keeps people trapped. This is simply false. And it's a lie on many levels. It's a lie because it's, it's describing things working like human law, number one. What were you going to say, Wendell? God was damaged. Yeah, so God was somehow negatively impacted or changed, and God needs some adjustment or something done to him uh, to fix the problem from God's side. So when Adam sinned, did God get changed? No. Did God's law get changed? Did humankind get changed? So the plan of salvation has to fix or heal humankind. It doesn't do anything to God or God's law. So this is a lie. But it's Satan's lie. There's something wrong with God. His lie was always something wrong with God. There's something wrong with God. Something wrong with God. Now we teach in Christianity, yep, there's something wrong with God. We call it his wrath. He has to be propitiated. Something has to be done to him because there's something wrong with him. If God could just get some anger management classes, learn how to restrain himself a little bit, we could live eternally in sin because there's really nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God who will kill you for it. This is the penal view. This is what was just read. But notice, this view claims, and I'm going to say it again, I'm going to read it to you, God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Do you understand the lie here? God was not separated from humankind because of our sin. God became human because of our sin. I'm going to say that again. This teaching is that God separated and took Himself and distanced Himself from humankind because of sin. In reality, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the right. God became sin. He didn't separate. He took it. This is a gross distortion. Pardon? It was necessary for Him to separate. It was necessary for Him to become human. Exactly. They want you to believe that God is so offended, his, his sensibilities are so outraged, he can't look upon sin. It just offends him. It's so horrible for him that you have to be covered by something because if he sees it, he will just have no self-control at all and he'll lash out and wipe you out. This is pathetic. It's not true. Well, Tim, yes? Doesn't that teaching right away come away from the concept of sola scriptura? I mean, if he's if he's saying, the Bible says this, but in spite of that, here's what we say, then we've stepped away from the Bible only. Yes, and so, yes, so you point out very clearly, they claim to rest their teachings on the soul of Scriptura, but their teaching is completely contrary to what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that God became sin. He didn't separate, he joined. We are now closer. If you value on White's writings, she says humanity is now closer to God through redemption and what Christ has achieved, Than they would have been had Adam never sinned. (laughs) Do you understand? Because now part of the member of the Godhead is human. He's one of us. That brings us closer. The penal substitution view teaches the exact opposite of the Bible. It denies that you're saying scripture, and it places barriers between the soul and God. It obstructs the plan of salvation. What did John the Baptist teach? Because the view I just read, that the death of Christ was necessary to remove the barrier from God's side, which was his wrath. That's the barrier that separates us. God's attitude, wrath, anger towards sin. John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of the Father. Is that what it says? The sin of the world. The scripture teaches that we are separated not by some deficiency or attitudinal issue in God. We are separated by sin in us. That's what separates us. And thus, Christ came to take that away so that we won't have anything that keeps us from him. So with this in mind, how do you explain what's necessary for salvation? You're on a plane, flying, flying, and somebody next to you said, uh, "I I see you're reading a Christian book there. Tell, I'm not a Christian. What do you believe is uh, going to happen to me, and and what do I need to experience so that uh, I know a general idea I won't have everlasting life? But but what do I need to experience? What what what, what what's going on? How, how do I get saved? What do you tell them? Okay, you got some homework to do. <laughs> this is life. But this is life eternal that they might. Know you. Know God. The only true God and Jesus Christ you now sent. John seventeen three. Life eternal is knowing God. What does that mean? So, see, words have meaning. You have to understand the meaning of the words. To know God. Is that to know about God? Is that to take a get a doctoral degree in theology and study the, the Bible? The theologians in Christ's day, the Sanhedrin, were the experts on the Bible. Did they know God? No, they hated God in human flesh. See, in the Bible language, know is intimate connection with. So a simple example to make it practical. Most of us know about Donald Trump or George Bush or Barack Obama. We know about them. How many of you know them? See, that's the difference between knowing about, and much of what we know about them is probably not even true. That's the difference between knowing about somebody and knowing them. Life eternal is not knowing about God. Life eternal is knowing God. Why is that life eternal? Why, why would that be life eternal? Because it changes you. When you know God, it changes your life. That where you live for others and not for yourself. Yes, and yet we discovered in our various research and studies that in America, 32% of Americans view God as authoritarian or dictator-like. 24% seem distant or uninvolved. Only 23% see God as love. 16% seem as critical. Is it possible to know a God who is nothing like Jesus revealed? And you know that God. Will you be changed by knowing that God? Yes, you will be changed because it's one of the laws, design laws, the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we worship. We won't be changed to be like Jesus, but we will be changed. The no. This is why we must know the, notice this, you must know the, the only true God and Jesus Christ And now ascent. Why do you think he had the and Jesus Christ in there?
1: Because
0: he represented Christ God. If you see me, you've seen the Father. You see, this is where you get the true identity of God, who God is, in Jesus Christ. If you take that apart, there's lots of God concepts out there. So what if they ask you, then how do I get to know God? Yeah, and so I've had a patient say to me uh, who was struggling with anxiety issues, and she said, you know, all my friends tell me that I should trust Jesus, but but, but, Dr. Jennings, I can't do it. And I said, of course you can't. She was surprised. What? Of course you can't. I said, if you were in the mall and a stranger came up and tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, let me borrow the keys to your car and the keys to your house, you can trust me. Would you let him? She says, no way. I said, well, if you won't let a stranger borrow the keys to your car and the keys to your house, how are you going to trust a stranger with the keys to your life? This is why Life Journal is knowing God. You have to get to know Him because once you get to know Him for who He really is, trust is an automatic outcome. We trust trustworthy beings or trustworthy people. Okay? But you can't trust somebody you don't know. So, how do you get to know Him? Scripture, nature, science, and life experiences. And life experiences include interactions. And I think we'll get to it in a minute. Let me move on. A couple of the quotes, we'll come back to this, um, about witnessing to Jewish people. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll just jump ahead. I'll probably miss it. It'll be out of order. But what what do you think the greatest obstacle? Yesterday I did an interview with a rabbi who is a, uh, a Messianic rabbi, and he broadcast live. We did a live broadcast into Israel yesterday uh, on my new book, The God-Shaped Heart. And uh, we we talked, what is the greatest obstacle for Jewish people to accept Jesus as Messiah? The greatest obstacle are Christians. (laughs) That's the greatest obstacle. Look at the history of the Christian church and what so-called Christians have done to Jews. And that's the concept of Christianity. They have the people who will burn them in gas chambers, the people who did all types of atrocities in the name of Christ. And when you represent... So one of the questions, one of the Jewish... Um, theologians, I heard on on another radio station this week, they were witnessing to Jews in Israel and a Jewish professor said to the Christian, said, I'll ask you one question about your Messiah. I'll ask you one question. You want to witness me about Messiah? I'll ask you one question. This was his question. Was Martin Luther, your brother? Is Martin Luther, your brother? Martin Luther, if you don't know the history, Martin Luther wrote, grossly horrendous things about the Jews, that they should be beaten, they should be imprisoned, they should be killed. His writings, many believe, were directly related to what happened in Nazi Germany and what the Germans did to to, uh, to the Jews. And so he asked the question, was this person who had such bitterness and hatred toward the Jews in his heart your brother? You understand that's a trap question. Did Martin Luther ever change his mind? Not that I know of. No. Not on that issue. So, what's the deal? It's not the history of true Christianity. How do you explain that? You explain it by showing the early apostolic church what did they do. Everyone, Galatia, Corinth, and all these Ephesus, they were taking up collections for what purpose? What were the collections primarily for? The Jews. To take to the Jews. That's what the Christians were doing, ministering to help the Jews. That's what they were doing in the early Testament church but something changed in Christianity what? the imperial law they were operating back then on the law of love other centeredness living communally died as martyrs and so forth but then the law changed our law works like God's law works like human law system of rules you got to punish for and the church went into the dark ages and we put crosses on our tunics and we go into the crusades and we put, burn people to stake and we, we have the an inquisition and we do all types of atrocities including torture and, and do terrible things to the Jews as well as the Muslims why? because we think God's government runs like ours we use coercive methods, and the Bible teaches Christians are going to do it again. No one can buy or sell, save him who has the mark of the beast. Christians are going to lead the world in coercing people to believe and practice in certain ways, lest you have your freedoms taken away, and you can't buy or sell. It's going to happen again. Why? Because Christians accept that God's law works this way and then when Satan comes impersonating Christ and he, you know, I've died for you, I love you so much I only want to heal you. If you won't trust me though I, I, I'll have to discipline you and so I'm going to make, make it so you can't buy or sell until you surrender and accept me as your savior and then after, after that we'll have to imprison you and, and, then, and then we'll ultimately have to execute those who won't because that's justice you're still in rebellion against my law and justice requires that we punish rebellion and most of the Christian world are going to go this is our God we've waited for him. And many Adventists will be doing that. Yeah. So here is a quote, rego- back to the question now, about how do you understand salvation? This is out of Acts the Apostles, 42. The work of gaining salvation is one of co-partnership, a joint operation. There is to be cooperation between God and the repentant sinner. This is necessary for the formation of right principles in the character. Man is to make earnest efforts to overcome that which hinders him from attaining to, to, a a, a hot button word, attaining to perfection. If you have a question about that, ask it after I unpack this. But he is wholly dependent upon God for success. Human effort of itself is not sufficient. Without the aid of divine power, it avails nothing. God works and man works. Resistance of temptation must come from man who must draw his power from God. Would this not be in harmony with Philippians two, twelve, and 13? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Is that not exactly what Philippians said? What's being described? Did you hear in either the Philippians or the Acts of the Apostle quote a legal adjustment being described in salvation? No. It's never been that. It's always been fixing what's broken in us. Why was, Why then must we cooperate? Why must we choose to align ourselves with God and choose to say no to evil in our lives? Why must we make that choice? Because that's not the choice Christians are presented with. Christians are presented with a choice, I choose to accept the legal payment... Notice the difference in the choice. I get down on my knees, I accept that I'm a sinner, I've done bad deeds, and I accept the legal payment of Jesus to my account, my sins were punished in him, and I accept his blood payment to my record books in heaven. Notice what you're choosing in that. You're not actually choosing to say no to evil in your heart. Why must you choose to say no? Well, let me ask the folks in here that are married, or have been married. When you made the choice to marry your spouse... What did that choice do to you? Think about it. When you made the choice, and you made the choice to marry, and you actually had the whole marriage ceremony, and you committed yourselves, and it's not that, that I'm thinking about it. You've actually made the This is my marriage partner. I've made the choice. Did something in you change when you made that choice? Think about it. Did your inner heart's openness to Pursue others, get closed down. Did you make the choice to shut that off? I'm not interested in other people. I, I can tell you before I got married, I was scoping the field. When I was a single guy, I'm out there, hmm, checking her out, hmm, like talk to her, well, what's she got on the, once I'm married, it's like, I don't care about any, not in that regard anymore. It, something changed in me. My choice changed me. Do you understand you cannot be changed internally without making choices? Your choices change you. Then you give your heart's devotion, your heart's loyalty, your heart's trust to your spouse when you chose to marry them in a very unique and special way like no other. It changed you. Could that change have happened without your voluntary choice? Could you have the same internal state of being in a shotgun wedding where you're not interested in it you're being forced to do it they legally go through some mechanism where they register in papers in a courtroom you're legally married but you didn't choose it does that result in the same internal change in you as when you choose to marry somebody it does not is there a reason that god uses the metaphor of marriage of christ and his church Can your characters be changed without you making choices? Or exertion. No, I can't. So you can't have change unless you're freely choosing to, to trust Christ, freely choosing to invite Him in, freely choosing to value His designs, His methods, freely choosing to move yourself in the direction that His. No, it doesn't mean you have the internal strength to succeed, but it's, it's your choice. This is what I want. The strength comes from the Holy Spirit. And so how the Holy Spirit works, many people ask. Many people pray, Lord, I mess up all the time. I'm so tired of messing up. Lord, I surrender to you. You take control. You ever heard that prayer? What's the last fruit of the Holy Spirit, last fruit in Galatians? Self-control. Self-control. Not Holy Spirit control. Holy Spirit's not going to take control of your choices. He never will do it. Because then you become a puppet, you become a robot, you become inca- incapable of loving. When you surrender the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, here's what he does. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. He gives you desires for love, compassion. And he reveals truth to your mind in ways you can comprehend. You see some step forward. What's your next step in, in growth, in maturing? Here's a, here's a change I need to make. Here's the truth for my life right now. The Holy Spirit in love. And, and he brings conviction. And you know, it's a choice you need to make. Whatever it might be. And then you're left completely free to make the choice or not make the choice. That's up to you. But when you actually choose it, then you receive divine power sufficient to succeed in the choice. But you don't get the power until you make the choice. And many people pray for the power, but never make the choice. You can't do that. The only way for God to heal you and you still be you in other words, not being erased with a new individuality, a new person put in your place. The only way for you still to be you is for you to be fully persuaded in your own mind. It says in Romans four, uh, 14. Five. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. So as you're convinced and persuaded and you choose it, you're transformed. This is how the truth heals and sets free. And what type of salvation process is this? It's not legal. It's regenerational and transformational. Sunday's lesson... In his epistle to the Romans, Paul set forth a great principle of the gospel. He stated his position on the question which were agitating the Jews and Gentile churches and showed that the hopes and promises which had once belonged, especially to the Jews, were now offered to the Gentiles also. Hopes and promises. Um, I'm going to go through this pretty fast. Is that speaking of salvation? The hopes and promises offered especially to the Jews? No, it was not speaking of salvation. Old Testament times, many non-Jews were saved. Jethro, um, uh, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, Melchizedek, uh, the Shunammite woman, the Magi from the East who came to worship Christ. None of these were descendants of Abraham, yet they all had saving relationships. You could be saved without being a Jew. So what was it the Jews had? It wasn't exclusive salvation. They weren't the only people who could be saved. What was it they had? What was the hopes and promises they had that we are now able to to share and participate in? That's ours now. Is it not the privilege of being the witnesses, the conduits, the ambassadors, the the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the ones who have Christ only the witnesses, the lights in the world, the salt to the earth? Isn't isn't this our privilege? Yes, this is the privilege. I won't read you the passages from Scripture because we're going to move fast now. This is uh, from Zarevages 307. You're the light of the world. The Jews thought to confine confine the benefits of salvation to their own nation. But Christ showed them that salvation is like sunshine. It belongs to the whole world. I love that. Like sunshine, it belongs to the whole world. The religion of the Bible is not to be confined between the covers of a book nor within the walls of a church. It is not to be brought out occasionally for our benefit. And then carefully let aside, it is to sanctify the life that manifests itself in every business transaction. And in our social relationships, true character is not shaped f- from outside and put on. It radiates from within and shines out. If we wish to direct others in the path of righteousness, the principles of righteousness must be enshrined in our own hearts. You can't, in other words, you can't share something you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, in medicine, we can't teach. I, I cannot teach open heart surgery. Can't teach that. Even though I'm a doctor, I can't teach that. I don't know it. You can't teach what you personally don't know. If you don't know Christ, you can't share Christ. That's one of the problems in Christianity. We have a lot of people out there trying to promote Christianity who don't know Christ. Monday's lesson at the bottom, it says, What important principle can we take away regarding the whole question of mission from the fact that Paul sought to to help from an established church in order to evangelize a new area? What's a principle? It's a design parameter, a, a, a design laws. It's how things actually operate. And this principle, as you know, is the principle of love, or the principle of giving. And I just thought this was a nice quote out of Amazing Grace. I thought you'd appreciate it. One of the divine plans for growth. You want to grow? You want to get stronger? One of the divine plans for growth is impartation. The Christian is to gain strength by strengthening others, and quotes Proverbs 11, 25. He that waters shall be watered himself also. This is not merely a promise. It is a divine law. Okay, what kind of law? What's well, a rule? If you obey the rule, then God uses His power to magically make it happen for you. No, it's design law. This is how reality works. It is a divine law, a law by which God designs that the streams of benevolence, like waters of the great deep, shall be kept in constant circulation, the law of love, this is brilliant stuff, <laughs> continually flowing back to their source. And the fulfilling of this law is the secret of spiritual growth. The law written on the hard mind, regenerational, recreational, again, not legal. Can you think of ways to sabotage this? Design. The design is the law of giving, the law of impartation, the law of watering others and you are strengthened in watering process. I can tell you as a teacher, I learn a whole lot more preparing to teach than if I just come and listen. By preparing to teach others, I am taught and learn more. Any teachers know that, right? Isn't it true? Yeah. Can you think of ways to sabotage this? How about instead of giving, we get people to hoard? And what gets people to hoard? Fear. Fear gets people to hoard, I'm afraid. And what causes fear? Just watch the news. (laughs) The news in America, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, the news is its primary effect to incite fear in people. I'm convinced of it. If you watch the articles, it's all about scary stuff. Storms, earthquakes, crimes, terrorism, nuclear weapons in Korea, uh, this, that, and the other thing. It's designed to incite fear. And then selfishness. If we get more selfish, fear drives selfishness, and both of these, and both lead to uh, mistrusting of God. And we don't trust God. We have fear and selfishness that leads to hoarding. We don't give. We hoard. We take. We got to get our savings. We we gotta we gotta store up for ourselves. Gotta watch out for self because we can't trust God to watch out for us. But what about this one? We're we're talking about how do we how do we sabotage? I'm trying to strategically. Satan does not want people living this law. So here's a sabotage that I think people miss. Over giving. What about the person who wants to donate blood so they go every day and try to give a blood pint every day? What will happen to that person? So if the person who wants to donate blood every day is told by the blood bank, no, they can't come back for six weeks or eight weeks, is the blood bank being unkind or unloving? Should they be accused of being selfish because I want to give and you won't let me? What about the farmer who wants to eat food, and and he doesn't want to be selfish, so he won't even eat one meal a day for himself. He wants to give all the produce away. What happens? What if the farmer who limits how much he gives away, keeping back seed stock, enough to provide for his family, his staff, to pay all his expenses, is he being selfish by doing that? So one way to sabotage the principle of giving is to trick compassionate people into giving beyond sustainable limits to the point of exhaustion and perhaps burnout and perhaps even death. They just give and give and they never set boundaries. What about a nation who sets boundaries limiting how many people they allow in their border every year? Is this limitation necessarily an act of selfishness or could it be done by citizens of that nation who want to be blessings to others? Who want to use the resources to benefit the less fortunate, but need to set boundaries to keep it sustainable? So one one way to destroy this is to get people to not set boundaries and overextend and overexpend to the point of collapse. Tuesday's lesson. Not by Paul's sermons, but by by his bonds, was the attention of the court attracted to Christianity. And uh, the point here, what was it that reached Nebuchadnezzar with the gospel? Was it not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace and trusting God and his deliverance? What reached Darius? Was it not Daniel in the lion's den? What started Paul's conscience itching that ultimately was brought to conversion on the Damascus Road? But what started the process? (laughs) Stephen being stoned. What helped spread the gospel in the first century? Was it not the martyrs? So, what's the point? Can some of the objective wrongs, painful events, and even evil perpetrated upon good people... Be turned to witness the gospel if we allow God to empower us with grace in how to deal with it. It doesn't mean what was done was right. It wasn't right to stone the martyrs. It wasn't right to stone Stephen. It wasn't right to to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and so forth. These were not rights. These were not right things. being. These were wrongs being done. But if we trust God, Joseph, another example, Joseph's brothers trusted God. God can take those things and bring good out of the outcomes. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who's created your universe to operate in harmony with you and and as we understand more of your designs and laws may may you uh, draw us closer to you, allow us to live more fully in harmony with your designs, give us effectiveness in communicating to the world these these final message of truth about your character and methods of love to free people who are who really have have good intentions like. Saul of Tarsus, who intended to do well, but his understanding of what right and wrong was was so so wrong that he ended up working against you. There are many good people like this who who just are in a system, and the system traps them. We pray that you will empower us and open the avenues for the message to go forward to reach those people, that they can be set free into your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen.